Though I've had many requests to return to Matthew chapter 25 this week, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So go ahead, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn and grab it and turn there. Um, A special thank you to you, church, for your kindness. In fact, I almost entitled this sermon a love letter to First Baptist Church of Grey Gables because um, what we see in the role of a pastor, the qualifications of a pastor, which is what we're going to examine today, as I was thinking through this and thinking about what to preach today and what I wanted to preach, um, I became overwhelmingly thankful that this church very much understands what the role and qualifications of a pastor are, uh, and you guys allow us uh, to do this job. Um, And uh, we're thankful for that. Of course, um, I'm so thankful for Brother Justin and Miss Chelsea and the ministry they've they've done with us here. In fact, I, I didn't want to call him last night while I was at the hospital. I was determined to preach. Because part of me knew that if I did, he would insist on going ahead and preaching um, with less than three hours' notice. Um, that's just the type of guy he is. And I always say that it's no coincidence that both my wife and Justin's wife's birthdays are in Pastor Appreciation Month in October. Because it does, uh, behind the scenes, take uh, strong women to encourage us and to walk through this life with us. And so we are abundantly blessed. So again, First Timothy... Chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, look at the qualifications of the pastor, um, knowing that sometimes the relationship between a church and a pastor breaks down uh, on the two sides uh, because they have mutually exclusive or highly conflicting expectations. Again, I don't want you to read anything into that today as we read this because you'll see how wonderfully you guys understand this as we walk along, but it is essential for any church to review expectations in light of God's word of their pastor. What does the scripture set out for the pastor's role and qualifications? Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil." Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, we do come to you and thank you for this, your word. What a treat it is, uh, Lord, to know you as you've revealed yourself to us uh, through the scriptures. Father, we we, we pray that this would, Lord, be preeminent in our lives to know you, to study you at your word, to grow into a deeper relationship with you. Um, and so, Father, we thank you for that opportunity we have right now for your spirit to work, the preaching of your word, to draw those who may not know you into a relationship with you and draw those who already know you into a deeper relationship with you. Uh, Lord, do that work, we pray, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
I have two quick introductory statements that I must make before we kind of dig into the points here that are given in your outline. Um, the first introductory point is I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the fact uh, that the role and the biblical qualifications of a pastor are given in the scriptures specifically to men. Um, the text assumes it. Uh, it shouldn't be, if, you, if you're going to bring up a biblical argument, it shouldn't be an argument. But unfortunately in our culture it becomes a very divisive issue these days. Um, in fact, all three of the terms used for pastor, bishop, uh, elder, and pastor are not only masculine nouns, um, but they're masculine in the Greek, and they're always, always referring to the office of men. Now, does that mean that women cannot minister in the church? No, every Christian is called to ministry. You know that, right? Every single one of you is called to ministry. But what do we, what do we know? We, we submit to the authority of the Word, and we say... Men and women were created equal in value, different in role. Right? There, there are specific roles that are given to us under the authority of the Word of God. And men are to be the spiritual leaders of their household. And the church most certainly should reflect men being spiritual leaders. And here's what's happened in our culture. Men ain't leading their households. And, and so... As, as we typically do as a culture, we adjust to the sin of the day as opposed to reform to what the Word of God says. And, and this has become an issue uh, throughout the local church, throughout our denomination even. Uh, and yet, uh, you cannot reckon the, the authority of, of Scripture with the office of pastor being held by a woman. You can't. I'm, don't, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the scriptures. Don't get mad at the scriptures. Submit to them. Uh, but see it in the scriptures. It's very, very clear that this is directed to men. The answer in our day is not, well, the men aren't stepping up, so we need more ladies to lead in the church. The answer would be for men to repent, <laughs> to see the role and qualifications of pastor, to submit to them and to strive to them, begin leading their families well, and leading their church. That's the answer. All right, that's all the time I'm going to spend on that particular because it's assumed in the scriptures you can't read it any other way. There's no uh, there's no gender neutrality when it comes to the terms specifically listed here in the Greek. There's just none. But I do want to also begin before we get into the the points here with a simple set of definitions. Um, as we know in the New Testament, the elder is the pastor is the bishop. Those are all used interchangeably. These are three different titles for one office. The term elder actually springs from Jewish background. The seniors in the village uh, came to form kind of an um, a, a oligarchy, and the, the, the village was thereby ruled, and eventually that kind of leadership appeared in the synagogue. And, and so the difference in the New Testament is, is that it's not simply seniority that's at stake, but a, but a kind of spiritual seniority. So the question is, we talk about elders, is not how many birthdays on this earth a person has, but whether or not there is spiritual maturity that all acknowledge to be plentifully abundant. The term pastor is actually simply the, the Latin definition for shepherd. 
It springs from a, what we would call an agrarian background. The shepherd in the Near East was not just some mass-producing farmer, but he was the one who fed, who nurtured, who guided, who protected, who healed, and even, yes, sometimes defended and disciplined his flock. Uh, the term bishop or overseer, you'll see those used interchangeably as well. It's not primarily just an administrator. But in the New Testament, it's someone who has primary oversight for the people of God in the local place. So, okay, we've got our preliminary things out of the way. We define the role of the pastor. We saw the qualifications, biblically speaking. Now, what then does the New Testament say the pastor, the overseer, the elder should be like? I've got five things this morning. First, observing this list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, um, we see the unexceptional nature of most of those qualifications. What do I mean by that? I mean, first, the, the list of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. It, it is. When you read through this, this list is remarkable for being Unremarkable. There is nothing here about the prospective candidate's IQ. Praise be to the Lord. There's, there's nothing that stipulates a certain kind of personality type, that this person must be an extrovert. Again, praise be to the Lord. Uh, there's nothing even about the standard of education. Now, listen, I, I'm not suggesting that, that the qualifications here are worthless or low or, or common, but they're unexceptional in this sense. With, with only two exceptions in this list of what we just read, only two exceptions, every single item or qualification that's listed for a pastor is also mandated somewhere in Scripture from all Christians. Did you get that? In other words, this is not a list of characteristics that, that sets us as pastors qualitatively apart from everybody else. With only two exceptions that will... See later in the letter. Thus, if we're told he must be a husband of one wife, does that mean the rest of us ought to have a whole lot of them? That he must not be given or addicted to wine, does that mean the rest of us are allowed to get drunk? That he must be hospitable, does that mean the rest of us are allowed to be selfish in our homes? No. In every case in Scripture, that kind of characteristic is supposed to, to be prevalent in the whole church. So with the gift of, gift of hospitality, it is specifically laid on all Christians. Just read Hebrews chapter 13. This list is remarkable for actually being unremarkable. That means, church, the very things you expect from your pastors, you must also expect from yourselves. It's essential to understand that, that all the people of God are to grow in godliness. All the people of God are to grow in conformity to Christ and in holiness and in generosity. There's not some fundamental division by which the pastor becomes sort of a spiritual super saint and all the rest sins are ex rightly excused because they just so happen to not be a pastor. That's not what the, the text tells us. The list is remarkable for being... Pretty unremarkable. The second thing I want to observe is that the prime characteristic of the pastor is that his life constantly reflects biblical values. The prime characteristic of the pastor 
is that his life constantly reflects biblical values. Now we're going to go through the list. This is kind of the entailment of the list. I'm convinced that a close study of this passage and others like it reveal this very thing to be just a profound principle. Wherever else the Christian teacher, preacher, pastor, leader, whatever else he must be like, he must reflect Christian or biblical values in his own life. So let's go through this list rather quickly, okay? Verse 2, it says he must be blameless. Other texts say above reproach. There is not to be some profound inconsistency or flaw that everybody agrees is there and reproaches the man for. He must be the husband of one wife. Not only blameless, but the husband of one wife. Doubtless you're aware that people debate over what this means. Some think it means that the pastor must be married. Of course, that would have excluded Paul himself, right? Certainly elsewhere, Paul insists that there's actually many advantages to the ministry and being single. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul explicitly lays out the potential advantages to being single. In fact, he calls singleness a charisma, a charismatic gift. He calls marriage a charismatic gift as well. But nobody has both gifts simultaneously. Both are gracious gifts from God. This is unlikely an interpretation, therefore, uh, that it is referring to the fact the pastor must be married. Some think it means that he's forbidden to remarry, shall his first wife die. However, Jesus insists that in the consummated kingdom, there is no giving in marriage. And elsewhere, he allows for remarriage for a widow or widower, provided it is in the Lord. That is, to a spouse who is a believer. I'm not persuaded that's what's at stake here either. It tells us that very things in Romans chapter 7, verses, 7, or verses 1 through 4. Uh, some think that it means the pastor should not be a polygamist. That is, a person who is married to more than one wife. Others object this cannot be because polygamy was never practiced in the church for those who became Christians. They were always only allowed to marry one wife. But supposing someone entered the church already a polygamist. And I know that you think, what are we, in Utah? No, um, sorry. <laughs> I really should get more sleep before I preach. But um, so suppose someone became a Christian, confessed his sin, but already had two or three wives at the very moment of confessing Christ as Lord. What then? Well, polygamy actually wasn't all that common in the ancient world, but it was more common in the upper circles of society. Thus, Herod the Great had ten wives. He didn't have ten at once, only seven or eight at once, because he bumped off some before he got to the full quota. But in many societies, the higher up you are in society, the more likely you are to marry more than one wife. It was also almost the mark of your capacity to support them and therefore of your leadership potential. But just because you have leadership potential in the world does not mean you have it in the church. And again, this, this might be different for us. We're in the 21st century America. We don't seem to have that issue necessarily, although some would argue it shows its forms. But it does have direct bearing on the church in Africa. In fact, I believe Brother Brock and I dealt with something very similar, a question that was raised uh, in our time in Ivory Coast, where sometimes people are converted already with 
three or four wives. And if this text is to be understood correctly, I believe it means that those people cannot be pastors in the church. Now, now why? What's the point behind that restriction? Well, one of the major reasons behind this restriction would be theological. Marriage itself, again, what is marriage? It is to be a model of the relationship between God and Israel under the old covenant and between God and the church under the new. It recurs again and again, and thus spiritual failure is often referred to in the scriptures as adultery. Spiritual adultery. Any book coming to mind right now, right? That's what the book of Hosea is all about. So does not Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to the church, he says, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin virgin to Christ. The book of Revelation pictures the, the consummation as the bride entering a consummated relationship with her groom, the exalted Lord Christ. Why? Hear this, because the deepest intimacy that human beings can know is the love between a man and a woman, intellectually, emotionally, and physically. It's the closest union we can know this side of the consummation. So it becomes then a model for the ultimate joy, ecstasy, intimacy that will be ours as we are in the presence of our bridegroom forever. Thus, the very institution of marriage becomes a perpetual model and reminder of the direction in which we're heading. We are the people of God, and we are betrothed to Christ. Shall then the marriages of the leaders of the church portray something different? Shall they be full of hatred and squabbles? Should they represent a picture of one husband and several brides? The Lord Christ has but one bride, and that bride is the church. Thus, even in family life, there is to be kind of of a modeling between the relationship between God and his people. So the husband is, or the pastor is to be a husband of one wife. Then we're told three characteristics that really reflect an orderly orderly life. Temperate, meaning clear-headed, self-possessed, not uh, an an extremist, but but sensible. 2 Timothy 1, 7, sober-minded is the next one where 2 Timothy reminds us, as Paul writes, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Sober-minded and of good behavior as well. The next two are particularly important for the propagation of the gospel. The pastor is to be hospitable. That is, the pastor must not be a hermit or recluse. Someone who loves ideas but just can't stand people. (laughs) No, he he must be hospitable, and he also must be able to teach. Now, this, by the way, if you were paying attention, this is the first of two characteristics on the list that is not elsewhere imposed upon all Christians. We'll come back to that one in a moment, but it's sufficient to say that this presupposes two things. Uh, One, knowledge of God through his word, and two, the ability to communicate it. So he must be able to teach. Verse 3, he must not be given to wine. That is not only free from drunkenness, but but really free from addiction is the principle there. The servant, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ must not be a slave to anything else. He's not to be violent, but gentle, patient, kindly, forbearing. 
Philippians 4, Paul says, be known for selflessness, for forbearance. It's almost an oxymoron, right? Be known for an almost self-denying lifestyle, which is exactly the opposite of everything the world expects in its endless pursuit of fame. Then we're told he's not to be greedy for money. Jesus Christ has promised his disciples enough for their needs, but no more. He frequently gives more, but he does not promise more. Christian leaders must therefore reflect contentment. Otherwise, what they're really signaling to people is that they love things other than Jesus Christ more than Jesus Christ. Now, not here, but it's important that we talk about this. You know I love talking about awkward things. Um, Not here, but it's important at the same time to say that, listen, some congregations, again, not here, develop a, a terrible attitude when it comes to their pastors and money. They project an image of, Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. (laughs) Or, they treat the pastor as if he is a hireling. We give him so much money and expect so much services rendered. In the New Testament, it it just doesn't work like that. In the New Testament, the churches free up the pastors to serve them. They're not paid as if their services can be evaluated by some number. In fact, there are some things that ministers are called to do that, quite frankly, you could not pay them enough for. But no, here's the guiding rule for paying pastors. The church is to be generous, and the pastor should not care too much. Sound good? I'm sorry. Does that sound good? All right. All right, that's ideal. Listen, where the churches are stingy or the pastors are greedy, it's the worst of all possible worlds. So the pastor, therefore, is not to be a lover of money. It's one of the qualifications. We move on. He's not to be quarrelsome or contentious. Some of us come from a background where we've not only tried to contend for the faith, but to be contentious about the faith. Not only to defend the truth but also shoot those who might disagree with us. We develop a certain kind of confrontational mentality, destroy much and call it faithfulness. But the alternative is certainly not just some wishy-washy sentimentality like a politician. What Scripture says in this regard is just of, of blistering importance in our day. What Scripture demands is a holy boldness with respect to the truth, but it also demands compassion and gentleness. Consider, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, where it says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach Patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we move on to our qualifications in verses 4 and 5, which tell us the pastor must manage his own family well. This text explicitly makes appeal to the principle referred to in the parable of the talents. Do you remember that one? Faithfulness in a smaller area 
qualifies a person for faithfulness in a larger area. But note this principle also gives an impressive dignity. It uplifts the Christian home. Not all are eligible to be elders in the church, but most of us are elders in the home, as it were. The text says, having his children in submission with all reverence, the pastor, the overseer of the church, does not have the right to let his family go. Now, some say, and this was a question I think this week if you got the reading, some say, does this mean that his children must be Christians? The text to which people refer to is is Titus chapter 1 verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. It's an unusual expression, but it does not mean that they must be believers. What it means is they must be faithful or responsible. As long as they are under his jurisdiction in his home, under his authority, they must be restrained, responsible, and faithful people if, in fact, He loses control of them utterly, then he does not have the right to serve as pastor in the church of Jesus Christ. And is it at this point where Justin and I, I'm sure both, would encourage you to pray for our families? Uh, This is something that this church does so incredibly well, is support the family of the pastor and lift them up in prayer. Um, We can't thank you enough for that and continue to pray. The number one thing, if you ask me, what can I pray for you for? I will tell you, pray for my children's salvation. Pray that they come to know Christ and pray that they're faithful, responsible people. Otherwise, I'll have to resign and that will not be good. Um, No, in in all seriousness, we love our families. uh, And this church has been so protective of this very thing. It's one of the things that brings tears to my eyes to think about. I just can't get over thinking about my, I'm oh, sorry, thinking about my daughter, um, it lack of sleep, um, thinking about my daughters and my son being 18 and walking down the aisle, graduating, and having the same church family for their whole life, and really being able to see it as a family that they love and they care for. It just, it's, it's one of the sweetest joys about this church. Is I've got three kids, and they know most of you by name. <laughs> they have a family of 100 people. They love coming to church and being here with you and celebrating Christ with you. And, and that in itself just stirs my heart to tremendous praise for this place. Because the pastor, he must lead his family well. That means... From your point of view, that you must not expect your pastors to serve the church that they sacrifice their family. And thank you that in six years and in four years, that's never been the case here. We must shelter the families and and you must enable them to do so. In fact, you must and you do insist that we do so. Verse 6, here's the second qualification that's not mandated everywhere of believers, not only is the pastor to be able to teach? That's the first one. Remember, the second qualification that's mandated here, it's not mandated everywhere of all believers, is he must not be a novice. A new convert is what we would say there. 
Which, of course, can't be applied to everyone. The idea, we're told, is that that he's promoted too quickly, he may be puffed up with pride, and his fall be all the greater. Too rapid a promotion often leads to disaster, and then one falls into the same judgment as the devil. That is, as he was lifted up in pride and wanted to be in God's place, so the pastor who thinks of himself as only one step below God is suddenly so pompous and arrogant that his fall is certain. It's only a question of time. Therefore, converts must be tested, given time to mature, humbled, allowing them time to trip and fall before being promoted to high office in the church. He must not be a novice. And then we're told he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. In this context, we would say outside the church. Of course, among the church, but also among the pagans, the non-Christians and all, does not mean that your pastor should be one of the boys. But he must rather be known as a people of integrity, regardless of whether or not the pastor is liked for it. I do want to, before we move on, list three other qualifications that are listed elsewhere, not particularly in 1 Timothy 3, but elsewhere in the Scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible tells us, I charge you, Paul writing to Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Friends your pastor may have, favorites he must not have. It is essential that no one can charge him with partiality. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, which we're actually going to get to a little bit later, the Bible tells us the pastor must all pursue all godly virtues. And in, in several passages in 2 Timothy, not in the least chapter 3 and following, your pastor also must expect serious difficulties. And be persistent in the face of them. To be a good soldier, as Paul says. The role of pastor is not going to be uh, some smooth relationship. You will be, at times, bitterly disappointed. And if, in fact, you expect difficulty in the church this side of the parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you won't be disappointed. Expect difficulty and then pursue all godly virtue in the handling of them. All right, so so what's the point of all this? We look at the qualifications, we've listed them, hopefully we've defined them, given a little bit of substance for you. Um, What is the point of all of, of these qualifications? The point of these qualifications, again, it has to do with the demonstrated maturity of the Christian life. These lists of godliness and righteousness, they're they're mandated everywhere uh, of every Christian with the exception of these two, which we'll lead to now and look at those. Leads us to our third point. The distinctive characteristic of the pastor is that he be able to teach and preach the word of God. That is the thing that sets him apart the most. The distinctive characteristic of the pastor is that he be able to teach and preach the word. That's the qualification that if hopefully you're reading the qualifications of deacons every year when we do deacon nominations, you'll notice it's not laid on the deacons. It's laid on the pastors, the elders, the overseers. Let me mention several passages, and as I read them, I just want you to look for two pairs here. The first pair shows that the teaching ought to be authoritative and exemplary. That is to say... The teaching ministry of the church of Jesus Christ ought to have an authoritative note to it. But everything that is taught also must be modeled in the preacher-teacher. The the preacher-teacher, therefore, must be authoritative and exemplary. 
The second pair that I want you to look for is this. His content must be both doctrinal and applicable. Doctrinal and applicable. It must reflect, therefore, both truth and conduct. Now, listen to the passages here at stake. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Uh, will be the first passage we say, uh, Paul again writing to Timothy, These things command and teach, let no one despise your youth. Now, as a relatively young preacher, I've been brought to this passage often. The question I ask is, how does this pastor, um, how does he, he let no one despise his youth? Is it by just insisting upon his office? No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? Verse 12, let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit, in faith and purity. Do you hear the emphasis there on, on conduct, on, on how to live? Verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. There's, there's the truth, the doctrinal content. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. Then down in verse 16, it encourages, continue in them. We can look to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, where the Bible tells us, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Command them, it says. You hear the note of authority? Verse 18, Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to live, willing to share. Let them do good. That's doctrinal content. Not just doctrinal content, though but also how to live. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Or again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. The kind of teaching he offers, however authoritative it must be, it is nevertheless to be exemplary in his own lifestyle. Or 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, a text we're very familiar with. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. In fact, you could just read all of Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. In this regard, this is extremely important. Listen, there are so many demands on contemporary ministry. In many ways, our, our culture is just breaking down. We have a, a rising number of broken homes, of hurting people, of loneliness. And partly because of this, it's because there's a rising expectation that ministers will give themselves solely and primarily to chiefly counseling or shepherding. To things like event planning or administration. And listen, in some measure, they must. But hear me, listen. It's biblically wrong for any pastor to so give himself to counseling, to event planning, to administration, that he robs the entire people of God because he does not give himself to the ministry of the word and prayer. 
If, if we devote 30 hours a week to those other things, and as a result, we do not diligently study the Word of God, we do not diligently study this culture, and we do not diligently pray so that when we come into the pulpit, we're not only prepared, but we are stacked with unction, the anointing of the Spirit of God. We are robbing you. If we are wise, we will only devote so many hours a week to those other things. And after that, apart from emergencies, we will have to say at times, I'm sorry, my time has already committed. And church, again, thank you for not berating the pastors for this. This church understands. I was having a conversation last week with a dear sister who I love and respect, who was a little bit worried about last week's sermon about the temple. And I said, you know what the number one thing I love about Greg Abel's is? They are not concerned with what my opinion is. They want to know what the Word of God says. And, and they allow and encourage their pastors to devote themselves to the preaching of the Word of God. It's encouraging. Our first calling is to teach the whole counsel of God in preaching and discipleship and grow groups. And our distinctive characteristic is to teach the whole counsel of God. Now, look, some of that's actually done in counseling. Some of that's done in even event planning and administration. But it must not so order the pastor's life that he ministers for many hours each week to a half a dozen people and starves the rest of his flock. One does not become a powerful preacher of the Word of God simply by standing up and having the gift of gab. It takes study, prayer, reading, oh so much reading, thought, time, and it is hard work. And if you doubt that, come to my office. I will, I will give you a sermon to preach. And you can ask the men who have, who have done that with me. It is... It is no weak endeavor. It is hard. Moreover, it means increasingly, listen, that as biblical illiteracy rises in our generation, your pastor must not become a social commentary, right? Explaining perplexing matters or the political scheme of the day. He must learn to preach the entire structure of God's thought as it's reflected in the scriptures. And listen, that's not popular today. The basics need to be laid down again and again. It will not do to try and fit the gospel in such a way that it meets our current agenda of perceived needs. What do I mean by that? Okay, so, so we're lonely. So we just want to hear about Jesus is the one who loves you and is a wonderful comforter. Okay, our, our marriages are busting. So we just want to hear about how Jesus is the one who holds our marriages together. A family that prays together. together. Sounds great. Isn't that nice? Now listen, in each case, there is just enough truth to that one that one wants to say yes. But the truth of the matter is, listen, that things break our society. Things that, that tear our society apart have a deeper alienation to them. And it's rebellion against our God and maker. And the only solution to that kind of rebellion is the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you're lonely, yes. But, but you're also sinful. And so repent of your sin and then trust in Jesus Christ who is your comforter. 
Your marriages are broken, yes, but where there's contention, there's pride. So repent, serve your husband, serve your wife, and recognize the, the picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you are to display in your marriage. It's because of sin that this is the issue. So what we need is a full gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, not some moralistic therapeutic deism. There is a poem by Phyllis McGinley, McGinley excuse me, where she describes her creation, the, the Dr. Reverend Harcourt. She says this about him. She says, And in the pulpit eloquently speaks on diverse matters with both wit and clarity, art, education, God, the early Greeks, psychiatry, St. Paul, true Christian charity. Vestry repairs that shortly must begin, all things but sin. He seldom mentions sin. But, but that's not the way the Bible storyline hangs together. Right? The Bible storyline insists that we, human beings, image bearers of God, we have shaken our puny fist right in our Creator's face. We have gone our own way, and yet God has pursued us in covenantal relationship with people across the ages of history, and now supremely under the terms of the new covenant that's been ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is interested in bringing people into a living relationship with a sovereign God who has made us, who provided rules over us and who will one day judge us. That can only come through a faith relationship with Christ who died for sinners like you and me. And that is what we must preach. With all that it means then for social transformation, for Christian liberty, char- living charity, care, for serving as salt and light in a decaying society. That is what we must preach. The whole counsel of God. Number whatever one we're on now. In the next place. There is a stress in the pastoral epistles, listen to this, on observable spiritual growth in the leaders of the church. There, there is a, an emphasis. When we come to the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, there's an emphasis there on, on being able to observe spiritual growth in the pastors and in the leaders of the church. I'm not going to dwell on this point very long. Just look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 with me. There Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. See, the command in that scripture right there is is to continue. Did you hear that? Christians, by by definition, are a people who continue. They continue. If they do, then they save themselves and their hearers. This text says in both the area of life and doctrine, which are to be watched closely, others should see their pastor's progress. See, if Justin and I serve this church for for 10 more years and you're still here for those 10 more years, our prayer is that you would be able to say, you know, Pastor Cody, when when you came, you were a good preacher, but but you're better now. (laughs) Do you know, you know, when Pastor Cody came, he, he already reflected the many glories of Christ, but he's far more mature than when he first came. When Pastor Justin came, that his grasp of doctrine was excellent. I was taught and fed, but you know, 
He's still teaching me and still feeding me. And he understands more now than he did. My brother Justin, may may God help us to watch our lives and doctrines that others would see progress. I'm so thankful that we have the type of relationship where we do that constantly in one another. It's something I value so much. Thank you, bro. For reasons of time, we're going to go to the last one, okay? You know, listen, I, I want this to be the, the characteristic of my preaching. I really do. We don't leave here without talking about the return of Christ, ever. <laughs> like, can, I just, can I just say, if there's something that I'm, I'm thankful for in many of our worst seasons of life in the year of 2020 and 2021, it's directed my heart to never, never preach sermons without longing for the return of Christ. So, the two themes that are often interwoven with passages about spiritual leadership within the New Testament. There are two themes that are, in all of these passages that are often interwoven, hear them. The themes are doxology, which is really just, just praise to God, and eschatology, that is things to do with Christ's return at the end of the age. So let me read two passages, and I want you to hear both of those themes, doxology, eschatology, Hear them in the themes. First, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Doxology, praise to God. Eschatology, the end. Listen for it. Verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. That's eschatology. He who is the blessed and only potent, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That's doxology. (laughs) Consider another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We read these words in verses 7 through 12 and 15 through 17. Paul says of himself and other apostles who teach the word. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Doxology. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Eschatology, right? Do you see that? It's possible to treat what's going on here in the church today as only belonging to the immediate. It's possible for the pastors of the Church of Jesus Christ to access what they're doing in terms of how well respected they are, or how many compliments they receive, or how well the finances are coming, or whether or not the building is filling up again. 
But surely the pastors of the church of Jesus Christ must live with this single goal in view. To receive the well done from the master on the last day. Living with eternity's values in view. They must live with the aim that Jesus Christ be praised. Outwardly, we, we may waste away. We may burn up or even burn out in some ways. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether all of Callahan thinks that Pastor Justin and I are terrific guys. What really matters to us is whether they come to recognize Jesus Christ as terrific. It doesn't really matter to us whether or not the numbers here may have reflected overwhelming growth rates as desirable as that may be. If no one who walks through these doors lives with eternity's values in view, everything, everything must be shaped by the end. Everything must be shaped by the concern that Christ Jesus be glorified. All our ministry, therefore, must be characterized by doxology and eschatology. We'll close with a great line from a great hymn, Rise Up, O Men of God. Um, That tells us this, rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things, give heart and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Church family, again, this this week I know is very convicting for me, but oh, how my heart was filled with praise that you allow us to have these themes run through our ministry, that you not only allow us, but you encourage us and buy in that Jesus Christ be praised no matter what we do here. And that we always live with the end in view. That his return is imminent. And we will be ready. Praise be to God. Amen. Would you stand for a closing word of prayer? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for, oh Lord, this sweet gift, uh, this church. Lord, I, many times you know as we sit together, in my prayer to you... Um, just with overwhelming thankfulness that I get to to pastor my family, the family I was raised in, the family I've loved for most of my life, a family that I've known, a family that I've buried, a family that I've been able to hold the hands of. Father, it's remarkable to me because, Lord, you know how sinful I am. You know my every thought, word, and deed. You know how often I fail to live up to the qualifications of a pastor. And yet, um, you are the giver of all good gifts. And one of your best gifts is the church. And Lord, if there be one here who does not recognize the church, the local church, for what it is, which is a true, wonderful gift from the Lord, then Lord, would we be about seeking that in, in our own hearts which is, is causing that sin. Or that we would be about community in such a way where we would not see Sunday morning as some burden, but Lord, even tomorrow, we would already begin longing to be back together with our church family. That we would know that this is a place where Christ is honored and glorified. Where we would know that our minds are set for the end. And Father, that is not something that's going to come apart from your work. So we trust you and we thank you for your faithfulness to this place. Would you help us now strive all the more 
to obey you in such ways, to pursue you in such ways, and may you receive all honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.